Hello and a very warm welcome to this very special edition of the Nightlight Podcast. Special because on the program today, we're going to be paying a visit to heaven. Heaven, as seen through the eyes of Rebecca Springer about 130 years ago, and which she describes in great detail in her book, first published in 1897, called Intramuros, which is Latin for within the gates. Now, this must be one of the first documented life after death experiences. And what's so amazing about it is that Rebecca spent a few years in heaven, if you were to try to measure it in earth time. And in her book, she paints a vivid picture of the joys, the wonders of heaven, the joyful reunion with loved ones, the beautiful heavenly homes that await us there, and best of all, her meeting with the Master, the dear Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to read a few of my favorite chapters from the book, and I'm going to bookend my reading with two heavenly songs from my dear old friend Jerry Palladino. So let's fly to heaven first on the wings of this song, after which we'll go straight into the reading. Enjoy. Lord, when thou seest that my work is done, let me not linger on with failing In a world of work Who must sit idly by And pass the hours But with a word Just bid me home And I will come To you I'll run Just like a schoolboy back Time to go where time's no more When every breath's a chore Then let me leave here When there's no strength in me To sing your praise And nothing left each day We can achieve here Then with a word Just bid me home I will come to you I'll run just like a schoolboy bounding home when school is done I'll gladly come and Lord till that day you want me there with you Help me to wisely use each day you give me And help my candle burn from both ends bright Teach me to live my life for love completely And then with a word just bid me home And I will come you 
of miles away from home and friends, and had been ill for many weeks. I was entirely among strangers, and my only attendant, though of a kindly disposition, knew nothing whatever about the duties of the sick room. Hence, I had none of the many delicate attentions that keep up an invalid's failing strength. I'd had no nourishment of any kind for nearly three weeks, scarcely even water, and was greatly reduced in both flesh and strength. I had an unutterable longing for the presence of my distant loved ones, but they never came. They could not. I lay in a large, comfortable room on the second floor of a house in Kentville. A large stained-glass window opened upon a veranda fronting on the street. During much of my illness I lay with my face to the window. When the longing for distant faces and voices came more than I could bear, I prayed that the dear Christ would help me to realize his blessed presence, and that since loved ones of the earth could not minister to me, I might feel his presence. Especially did I not ask to be sustained should I be called to pass through the dark waters alone. It was no idle prayer, and the response came swiftly and speedily. All anxieties and cares slipped away from me as a worn-out garment, and Christ's peace enfolded me. One morning, dark and cold and stormy, after a day and night of intense suffering, I seemed to be standing on the floor by the bed in front of the stained-glass window. Someone was standing by me, and when I looked up I saw it was my husband's favorite brother who crossed the river many years ago. My dear brother Frank, I cried out joyously, how good of you to come. It was a great joy to me that I could do so, little sister, he said gently. Shall we go now? And he drew me toward the window. I turned my head and looked back into the room that somehow I felt I was about to leave forever. The attendant sat by the stove at the farther end, comfortably reading a newspaper, and on the bed turned toward the window lay a still white form with the shadow of a smile on the poor worn face. My brother drew me gently, and I yielded, passing with him through the window, out onto the veranda, and from thence on down the street. There I paused and said earnestly, I cannot leave my husband will and our dear son. They're not here, dear, but hundreds of miles away, he answered. Yes, I know, but they will be here. Oh, Frank, they will need me. Let me stay, I pleaded. Would it not be better if I brought you back a little later, after they come, he said with a kind smile. Would you certainly do so? And with his assurance, 
we started slowly up the street. But my heart clung to the dear ones whom I felt would not see me again on earth, and several times I stopped and looked wistfully back the way we had come. He was very patient and gentle with me, waiting always until I was ready to proceed again. At length he said, You're so weak that I think I'd better carry you. And without waiting for a reply, he stooped and lifted me in his arms as though I had been a little child. And like a little child, I yielded, resting my head upon his shoulder and laying my arm about his neck. It seemed so sweet, after the long, lonely struggle, to have someone assume the responsibility of caring thus tenderly for me. Entering Paradise He walked on with firm, swift steps. And I think I must have slept, for the next thing I knew, I was sitting in a sheltered nook made by flowering shrubs upon the softest and most beautiful turf in the world, thickly studded with fragrant flowers, many of them flowers I'd known and loved on earth. In the first moment, I observed how perfect in its way was every plant and flower. And what a scene that was on which I looked as I rested upon this fragrant cushion. Away, far beyond the limit of my vision, stretched this wonderful swirl of grass and flowers, and out of it grew equally wonderful trees whose drooping branches were laden with exquisite blossoms and fruits of many kinds. I found myself thinking of St. John's vision on the Isle of Patmos and the tree of life that grew in the midst of the garden bearing twelve manner of fruits and whose leaves were for the healing of the nations. Beneath the trees, in many happy groups, were little children laughing and playing, running hither and thither in their joy. All through the grounds, older people were walking, sometimes in groups, sometimes by twos, sometimes alone, but all with an air of peacefulness and happiness that made itself felt to me even a stranger. All were in spotless white, though many wore about them or carried in their hands clusters of beautiful flowers. As I looked upon their happy faces and their spotless robes, again I thought, These are they which have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Everywhere I looked I saw elegant and beautiful houses of a strangely attractive architecture, half hidden by the trees, that I felt must be the homes of the happy inhabitants of this enchanted place. I caught glimpses of sparkling fountains in many different directions, and close to my retreat flowed a river with placid surface and water as clear as crystal, 
The walks that ran in many directions through the grounds appeared to be of pearl, spotless and pure, bordered on either side by narrow strips of crystalline water running over stones of gold. The one thought that fastened itself upon me as I looked breathless and speechless upon this scene was purity, purity. No shadow of dust, no taint of decay of fruit or flower, everything perfect, everything pure. The grass and flowers looked as though fresh washed by summer showers, and not a single blade was any other color but the brightest green. The air was soft and balmy, though invigorating, and instead of sunlight, there was a golden glow and rosy glory everywhere, something like the afterglow of a southern sunset in midsummer. Suddenly I looked up and heard my brother, who was standing beside me, say softly, Well? I discovered that he was watching me with keen enjoyment. I had in my great surprise and delight wholly forgotten his presence. I would have answered, but then such an overpowering sense of God's goodness and my own unworthiness swept over me that I dropped my face in my hands and burst into uncontrollable and very human weeping. My brother lifted me gently to my feet and said, Come, I want to show you the river. When we reached the brink of the river, but a few steps distant, I found that the lovely meadow ran even to the water's edge, and in some places I saw flowers blooming placidly down in the depths among the colored pebbles with which the entire bed of the river was lined. My brother, stepping into the water, urged me to do the same. I drew back timidly, saying, I fear it is cold. Not in the least, he said with a reassuring smile. Come. Just as I am, I said, glancing down at my lovely robe, which to my great joy I found was similar to those of the dwellers in that happy place. Just as you are, he said with a reassuring smile. Thus encouraged, I stepped into the gently flowing river. To my great surprise, I found the water, in both temperature and density, almost identical with the air. Deeper and deeper grew the stream as we passed on. It'll go over my head, I objected. I cannot breathe under the water. I'll suffocate. An amused twinkle came into his eyes, though he said, soberly enough, We do not do those things here. Realizing the absurdity of my position, I plunged headlong into the bright water, which soon rippled several feet above my head. To my surprise and delight, I found I could not only breathe, but laugh, talk, and hear as naturally under the water as above it. I sat down in the midst of the many-colored pebbles and filled my hands with them as a child would have done. My brother lay down upon them as he would have done on the green sward and laughed and talked joyously with me. Do this, he said, rubbing his hands over his face and running his fingers through his dark hair. I did as he told me, and the sensation was delightful. 
I threw back my loose sleeves and rubbed my arms, then my throat, and again thrust my fingers through my long, loose hair, thinking at the time what a tangle it would be in when I left the water. What marvellous water! What wonderful air! I said to my brother, as we again stepped upon the flowery sward. Are all rivers here like this one? Not just the same, but similar, he replied. Then the thought came as we prepared to leave the water, what would we do for towels? For earth thoughts still clung to me, and I wondered too if my lovely robe was not spoiled. But behold, as we neared the shore, and my head once more emerged from the water, the moment the air struck my face and hair, I realized I would need no towel or brush. My flesh, my hair, my beautiful garments were as soft and dry as they had been before the water touched them. The material out of which my robe was fashioned was unlike anything that I had ever seen. It was soft and light and shone with a faint luster, reminding me more of silk crepe than anything I could recall, only infinitely more beautiful. It fell about me in soft, graceful folds, which water seemed to have rendered even more lustrous than before. We walked on a few steps, and I turned and looked back at the shining river flowing on so tranquilly. Frank, what has the water done for me? I said. I feel as though I could fly. He looked at me with earnest, tender eyes as he answered gently, It has washed away the last of the earth life and fitted you for the new life into which you have entered. It is divine, I whispered. Yes, it is divine, he said. some distance in silence, my heart unbelieving with the thoughts of the strange new life. The houses, as we approached and passed them, seemed wondrously beautiful to me. They were built of the finest marbles, encircled by broad verandas, the roofs or domes supported by massive or delicate pillars or columns, and winding steps led down to the pearl and golden wall. Happy faces looked out from these columned walls, and happy voices rang upon the clear air from many a celestial home. Frank, where are we going? at length I asked. Home, little sister, he answered tenderly. Home? Have we a home, my brother? Is it anything like these? I asked with a wild desire in my heart to cry out for joy. Come and see, was his only answer as he turned into a side path leading towards an exquisitely beautiful house 
whose columns of very light grey marble shone through the green of the overhanging trees with the most inviting beauty. Before I could join him, I heard a well-remembered voice saying close beside me, I just had to be the first to bid you welcome. Looking around, I saw the dearly loved face of my old friend, Mrs. Wickham. Oh, oh, I cried as we met in warm embrace. You will forgive me, Colonel Springer, she said a moment later, giving her hand cordially to my brother. It seems almost unpardonable to intercept you thus in almost the first hour, but I heard that she was coming, and I could not wait. But now that I have looked upon her face and heard her dear voice, I will be patient till I can have her for a long, long talk. We have all eternity before us. But you will bring her to me soon, Colonel Springer? she asked. Just as soon as I may, dear madam, he replied with an expressive look into her eyes. Then, with a warm hand-clasp and the parting injunction, Come very soon, she swiftly passed out of my sight. Her home is not very far away. You can see her often. She is a lovely woman. Now, come, little sister, I long to give you a welcome to our home. With that, he took my hand and led me up to the broad veranda with its beautiful inlaid floor of rare and costly marbles and its massive columns of grey, between which vines covered with rich, glossy leaves were intermingled with flowers of exquisite colour and delicate perfume hanging in heavy festoon. We paused a moment here that I might see the charming view on every side. It is heavenly, I said. He answered that it could not be otherwise, and led me through a doorway between the marble columns into a large reception hall, whose inlaid floor and broad low stairway at the far end at once held my fancy. Before I could speak, my brother took my two hands and said, Welcome, a thousand welcomes, dearest sister, to your heavenly home. It is your home, and I'm to stay with you, I said, a little confused. Oh, it's your home, and I'm to stay with you until my brother comes. Always, dear brother, always, I cried, clinging to his arm. He smiled and said, We will enjoy the present. We will never be far apart again. But come, I'm eager to show you all. Turning to the left, he led me through the beautiful marble columns that everywhere seemed substituted for doorways into a long, oblong room upon whose threshold I stopped in wondering delight. The entire walls of the room were again of that exquisite light grey marble polished to the greatest luster, but over the walls and floor were strewn exquisite long-stemmed roses of every variety and colour, from the deepest crimson to the most delicate shades of pink and yellow. I stooped to touch them, and lo, they were embedded in the marble. My brother explained, One day, while the house was building, a company of young people came to the door, 
and asked if they might enter. I gladly gave them my consent. Then they asked who the building was for, and when I told them, they asked, May we beautify this room? I gave them permission, wondering what they might do. The girls, who had immense bunches of roses in their hands, began to throw the flowers over the floor and against the walls. Whenever they struck the walls, to my surprise, they remained, as though in some way permanently attached. When all the roses had been scattered, the room looked just as it does now, only the roses were really freshly gathered roses. Then the boys each produced a small case of delicate tools, and in a moment all boys and girls were down on the marble floor and busy at work. How they did it, I do not know. It's one of the celestial arts, taught to those of highly artistic tastes. But they embedded each living flower just where it had fallen in the marble, and preserved it as you see before you. They came several times before the work was completed, for the flowers do not wither here nor fade, but are always fresh and perfect. And such a merry, happy company of young people I never saw before. They laughed and chatted and sang as they worked. I could not help wishing more than once that the friends whom they'd left in mourning for them might look upon this group and see how little cause for sorrow they had. At last, when all the work was completed, they called me to see their work, and I was not sparing of my praises either for the beauty of the work or for their skill in performing it. Then, saying they'd be sure to return when either of you came, they went their way together to do something of the kind elsewhere, I do not doubt. Happy tears began dripping upon my hands, and greatly touched I asked who these lovely people were. He replied that he knew them now, but they were strangers until they came that first morning, and he named them. They were children I had known in my earth days. Precious children, I said. How little I thought my love for them in the olden days would ever bring to me this added happiness here. How little we know of the links binding the two worlds. Meeting the Master The following morning, my brother said to me after an interesting hour of instruction, Shall we go for the promised visit to Mrs. Wickham now? Indeed, yes, I answered eagerly. So we set forth. We soon reached her lovely home and found her waiting at the entrance as though expecting us. After a cordial greeting to our friend, my brother said, I'll leave you together for that long talk for which I know you are both eager, and will go my way to other duties. I'll find you later on at home. After he had gone, my friend took me over to her lovely home, showing me with great pleasure the rooms prepared for each beloved member of her earthly household still to come. Returning down the broad stairway, we entered a very large music room with broad walkways, 
supported by marble columns running along three sides of it, on a level with the second floor. In this gallery were a number of musical instruments, harps, vials, and some unlike any I had ever seen elsewhere. My daughter, my friend explained, who left us in early childhood, has received a fine musical training here, and is fond of gathering in her young friends and giving us a musical treat quite often. We re-entered from this room the reception hall, opening upon the front veranda and outer steps. Here Mrs. Wickham drew me to a seat beside her and said, Now, tell me everything of the dear home and friends. Holding each other's hands as we talked, she questioning, I answering, things too sacred to be repeated here, were dwelt upon for hours. At last, she said, rising hastily, I will leave you for a little while. Nay, you must not go, as I would have arisen. There's much yet to be said. Wait here till I return. I'd already learned not to question the judgment of wiser friends, and yielded to her will. As she passed through the doorway to the inner house, I saw a stranger at the front entrance and arose to meet him. He was tall and commanding in form, with a face of indescribable sweetness and beauty. Where had I seen him before? Surely I had not met him since I came. Ah, now I know, I thought, it is St. John, the beloved disciple. He had been pointed out to me one morning by the riverside. Peace be unto this house, was his salutation as he entered. How his voice stirred and thrilled me. No wonder the master loved him, but that voice and that face. Enter, thou art a welcome guest. Enter, and I will call the mistress, I said, as I approached to bid him welcome. Nay, call her not. She knows that I am here. She will return, he said. Sit thou a while beside me he continued as he saw that I still stood after I had seen him seated. He arose and led me to a seat near him, and like a little child I did as I was bidden, still always watching the wonderful face before me. You have but lately come? he asked. Yes, I am here but for a short time, so short that I know not how to reckon time as you count it here, I answered. Oh, that matters little, he said with a gentle smile. Many cling always to the old reckoning in the earth language. How does the change impress you? How do you find life here? Oh, I said, if they could only know. I never fully understood till now the meaning of the sublime passage, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. It is indeed past human conception. I spoke with deep feeling. For them that love him. Do you believe that all Christians truly love him? He asked. Do you think they love the Father for the gift of the Son and the Son because of the Father's love and mercy? Or is their worship oftentimes that of duty rather than love? He spoke gently and reflectively. Oh, 
I said, you who well knew the beloved master, who was so loved by him, how can you doubt the love that he must inspire in all hearts who seek to know him? A radiant glow overspread the wonderful face, which he lifted, looking directly at me. The mist rolled away from before my eyes, and I knew him. With a low cry of adoration, I threw myself before his feet, bathing them with happy tears. He gently stroked my bowed head for a moment, then rising, lifted me to his side. My Savior! My King! I whispered, clinging closely to him. Yes, and elder brother and friend, he added wiping away tenderly the tears stealing from beneath my closed eyelids. Yes, yes, the chiefest among ten thousand, and the one altogether lovely, again I whispered. Ah, now you begin to meet the conditions of the new life. Like many another, the changing of faith to sight with you has engendered a little shrinking. That is all wrong. Have you forgotten the promise I go to prepare a place for you that where I am ye may be also? If you loved me when you could not see me except by faith, love me more now when we have really become co-heirs of the Father. Come to me with all that perplexes or gladdens you. Come to the elder brother, always waiting to receive you with joy. Then he drew me to a seat, and conversed with me long and earnestly, unfolding many of the mysteries of the divine life. I hung upon his words, I drank in every tone of his voice, I watched eagerly upon every line of his beloved face, and I was exalted, uplifted, reborn, beyond the power of words to express. At length, with a divine smile, he arose. We will often meet, he said, and I, bending over, pressed my lips reverently to the hand that still clasped my own. Then, laying his hands a moment in blessing upon my bestowed head, he passed noiselessly and swiftly from the house. As I stood watching the Saviour's fast-receding figure passing beneath the flower-laden trees, I saw two beautiful young girls approaching the way he went. With arms intertwined they came, sweet Mary Bates and May Camden. When they saw the master, with a glad cry, they flew to him, and as he joyously extended a hand to each, they turned, each clinging to his hand, one upon either side, accompanied him on his way, looking up trustfully into his face as he talked with them, and apparently conversing with him, in happy freedom. I saw his face from time to time in profile as he turned and looked down lovingly, first upon one, then the other lovely upturned face, and I thought, that is the way he would have us be with him, really like children with a beloved elder brother. I watched them till the trees hid them from my sight and I passed softly through the house to the beautiful entrance at the rear. Just before I reached the door, I met my friend, Mrs. Wickham, 
before I could speak, she said, I know all about it. Do not try to speak. I know your heart is full. I'll see you very soon. There, go. And she nudged me gently to the door. How my heart blessed her, for it indeed seemed sacrilege to try to talk on ordinary topics after this blessed experience. I did not follow the walk, but went across the flowery turf beneath the trees until I reached home. I found my brother sitting upon the veranda, and as I ascended the steps he arose to meet me. When he looked up into my face, he took both my hands into his for an instant and simply said very gently, Ah, I see. You have been with the master, and stepped aside almost reverently for me to enter the house. I hastened to my room and, dropping the draperies behind me at the door, I threw myself upon the couch and with closed eyes lived over every instant I had spent in that hallowed presence. I recalled every word and tone of the Saviour's voice and fastened the instructions he had given me indelibly upon my memory. I seemed to have been lifted up to a higher plane of existence, to have drunk deeper draughts from the fountain of all good, since I had met him whom my soul loveth. It was a long, blessed communion that I held thus with my own soul on that hallowed day. When at last I arose, the soft golden twilight was about me, and I knelt by my couch to offer my first prayer in heaven. Up to this point my life had been a constant thanksgiving. There seemed to be no room for petition. Now as I knelt, all I could utter over and over was, I thank thee, blessed Father, I thank thee, I thank thee. When at last I descended the stairs, I found my brother standing in the great flower-room. Oh, what a life! What a divine life! I whispered to him. You are only in the first pages of its record, he said. Its blessedness must be gradually unfolded to us, or we could not even here bear its dazzling glory. A Visit to the Grand Auditorium Not long after this, my brother said, We shall go to the Grand Auditorium this morning. It'll be a rare day, even here. Martin Luther is the talk. This will be supplemented by a talk from John Wesley. There may also be other speakers. It was not the first time we'd visited this great auditorium, although I have not hitherto described it. It stood upon a slight hill, and the mighty dome was supported by massive columns of alternate amethyst and jasper. There were no walls to the vast edifice, only the great dome and supporting columns. A broad platform of precious marbles, 
inlaid in beautiful crystalline stones, arose from the center from which the seats ascended on three sides, forming an immense amphitheater. The seats were of highly polished cedar wood, and back of the platform were heavy hangings of royal purple. An altar of solid pearl stood near the center of the platform. The great dome was deep and dark in its immensity, so that only the golden statues around its lower border were distinctly visible. All this I had noted from former visits. When we entered, we found the building filled with people eagerly awaiting for what was to follow. We soon were seated and also waiting. Soft strains of melody floated about us from an invisible choir, and before long, Martin Luther, in the prime of vigorous manhood, ascended the steps and stood before us. It is not my purpose to dwell upon his appearance, so familiar to us all, except to say that his great intellect and spiritual strength seemed to have added to his already powerful physical physique and made him a fit leader still, even in heavenly places. His discourse would itself fill a volume, and could not be given even in outline in this brief sketch. He held us enthralled by the power of his will and of his eloquence. When at length he retired, John Wesley took his place, and the saintly beauty of his face, intensified by the heavenly light upon it, was wonderful. His discourse theme was God's love, and if in the earth life he dwelt upon it with power, he now swept our souls with the fire of his exaltation until we were as wax in his hands. He showed what that love had done for us, and how an eternity of thanksgiving and praise could never repay it. Silence, save for the faint sweet melody of the unseen choir, rested upon the vast audience for some time after he had left. All seemed lost in contemplation of the theme so tenderly dwelt upon. Then the heavy curtains back of the platform parted, and a tall form about whom all the glory of heaven seemed to center emerged from their folds and advanced towards the middle of the platform. Instantly, the vast concourse of souls arose to their feet and burst forth as with one voice into that grand anthem in which we had so often joined on earth. All hail to the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Such a grand chorus of voices, such unity, such harmony, such volume was never heard on earth. It rose, it swelled, it seemed to fill not only the great auditorium, but heaven itself. And still, above it all, we heard the voices of the angel choir, no longer breathing the soft, sweet melody, but bursting forth into fervent songs of triumphant praise. A flood of glory seemed to fill the place, 
and looking upward we beheld the great dome ablaze with golden light and the angelic forms of the no longer invisible choir in its midst, with their heavenly harps and vials, and their faces only a little less radiant than that of him whose praise they sang. And he, before whom all heaven bowed in adoration, stood with uplifted face and kingly manner, the very God of heaven and earth. He was the center of all light, and a divine radiance surrounded him that was beyond compare. As the hymn of praise and adoration ceased, all sank slowly to their knees, and every head was bowed and every face was covered as the angel choir chanted again the familiar words, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall ever be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Slowly the voices died away, and a holy silence fell upon us. Presently, slowly and reverently, all arose and resumed their places. No, not all. Sweet Mary Bates had accompanied us to the sanctuary, and I now noticed that she alone still knelt in our midst with clasped hands and radiant uplifted face. Her lovely eyes fixed upon the Saviour as he still stood waiting before us, with such a look of self-forgetful adoration and love as made her truly divine. She was so rapt I dared not disturb her. But in a moment the master turned and met her adoring eyes with such a look of loving recognition that with a deep sigh of satisfied desire as he turned again, she quietly resumed her seat beside me, slipping her little hand in mine with all the confidence of a child who feels sure it is understood to the utmost. As I looked upon the glorious form before us, clothed in all the majesty of the Godhead, my heart tremblingly asked, Can this indeed be Christ, whom Pilate condemned to die an ignominious death upon the cross? I could not accept it. It seemed impossible that any man, however vile, could be blind to the divinity so plainly revealed in him. Then the Saviour, began to speak, and the sweetness of his voice was far beyond the melody of the heavenly choir, and his gracious words. Would that I could, would that I dared transcribe them as they fell from his lips. Earth has no language by which I could convey their lofty meaning. He first touched lightly upon the earth life, and showed so wonderfully the link of the light uniting the two lives, the past with the present. Then he unfolded to us some of the earlier mysteries of the blessed life and pointed out the joyous beauties just before us. When he ceased, we sat with bowed heads as he withdrew. Our hearts were so enfolded, our souls so uplifted, our spirits so exalted, our whole being so permeated with his divinity 
that when we arose, we left the place silently and reverently, each bearing away a heart filled with higher, more divine aspirations and clearer views of the blessed life upon which we were permitted to enter. I can touch but lightly upon these heavenly joys. There is a depth, a mystery to all that pertains to the divine life that I dare not try to transcribe. I could not if I would. I would not if I could. A sacredness enfolds all that curious eyes should not look upon. Suffice it to say that no joy we know on earth, however rare, however sacred, can be more than the faintest shadow of the joy we there find. No dreams of rapture, here unrealized, approach the bliss of even one moment in that divine world. No sorrow, no pain, no sickness, no death, no partings, no disappointments, no tears but those of joy, no broken hopes, no mislaid plans, no night, nor storm, nor shadows even, but light and joy and love and peace and rest forever and forever. Amen, my heart says again reverently. Amen. I remember, as I sat one morning upon the upper terrace in the house of my sister, whom I had welcomed there soon after my arrival, and who, though really then a denizen of earth, has passed over and taken possession of that beautiful home prepared for her, that my sister said to me, I often look across the river to those lovely hills in the distance and wonder if it is all as beautiful there as here. I mean some day to go and see. Why not go today? was my answer. Could you go with me this morning? was her inquiry as she turned her radiant face again toward the river and the lovely fields beyond. With pleasure, I replied. I've often wished to go myself. There's something very inviting in the beautiful landscape beyond the river. Where is Oliver? I asked. Will he not accompany us? No, she said, looking smilingly toward me. He's gone on an important mission for the master today. But you and I, dear, can go, and be at home again before his return. Then let us do so, I replied, rising and giving her my hand. She at once arose and instead of turning toward the stairway in the center of the building, we turned and walked deliberately to the low coping that surrounded the upper veranda. Without a moment's hesitation, we stepped over this into the sweet air that lay about us. There was no more fear of falling than if our feet had been upon the solid earth. We had the power of passing through the air at will and through the water, just as we had the power of walking upon the crystal paths and greens about us. We ascended slightly until we were just above the treetops, and then, what shall I say, we did not fly, 
we made no effort either with our hands or our feet. I can only think of the word drifting that will at all describe this wonderful experience. We went as a leaf or a feather floats through the air on a balmy day, and the sensation most delightful. We saw beneath us, through the green branches of the trees, the little children playing, and the people walking, some for pleasure, some for duty. As we neared the river, we looked down on the pleasure boats upon the water, and upon the people sitting or lying or walking on the pebbly bottom, and we saw them with the same distinctness as though we were looking at them simply through the atmosphere. Conversing as we drifted onward, we soon were over the tops of the hills to which we had looked so longingly from the veranda of my sister's house, and for some time we had no words to exchange. Our hearts were filled with sensations such as only the scenes of heaven can give. As we passed onward, in looking down, we began to see many suburban villages, similar to that in which our own happy homes were situated. Among many of them there was an unfamiliar air, and the architecture of the buildings in many respects seemed quite different from our own. I suggested to my sister that we drop downward a little. On doing so, we soon realized what caused this apparent difference in the architecture and surroundings. Where our homes were situated, we were surrounded by people we had known and loved on earth and of our own nationality. Many of these villages over which we were now passing we found were formed from what to us would be termed of foreign nations, and each village retained some of the peculiarities of its earth life, and these to us were naturally unfamiliar. We recognized again the wisdom and goodness of the Father in thus allowing friends of the same nationality to be located near each other in heaven as on earth. As we still drifted onward, in passing over an exquisitely beautiful valley between low hills of the most enchanting verdure, we saw a group of people seated upon the ground in a semicircle. They seemed to be hundreds in number, and in their midst a man was standing who apparently was talking to them. Something familiar and yet unfamiliar in the scene attracted us, and I said, Let us go nearer and hear, if possible, what he's saying, and see who these people are. Upon doing this, we found the people to resemble in great measure our own Indian tribes, their dress in a manner corresponding to that worn upon earth, though so etherealized as to be surpassingly beautiful. But the dusky faces and the long black hair still remained. The faces with intense interest depicted on each were turned toward the man who we could see was talking to them. Looking upon him, in a whisper of surprise, I said to my sister, Why, he's a missionary. As so often seemed to me to happen in that experience, when a surprise or a difficulty presented itself, there was always someone near to answer and enlighten us. And so we found on this occasion that our instructor was beside us, ready to answer any surprise or question that might be asked. He said at once, Yes, you're right. 
This is a missionary who gave his life to what on earth would be called the heathen. He spent many years in working for them and enlightening those who sat in darkness with the result, as you can see before you, of bringing hundreds into the kingdom of the Master. But as you will naturally suppose, they have much to learn, and here he still gathers them about him, and day by day leads them higher and higher into the blessed life. Are there many such, I asked, doing this work in this beautiful realm? Many hundreds, he said. To these folks, unenlightened as they were when they first came, heaven is as beautiful and happy a place as it is to any who've ascended higher, simply because we can enjoy only in the capacity to which our souls can reach. There are none of us who have not much yet to learn of this wonderful country. In several instances, as we drifted across the villages, we heard songs of praise arising from the temples and from people collected in different ways. In many cases, to our surprise, the hymns and the words were those with which we had been familiar on earth, and, although sung in a strange tongue, we understood them all. That was another of the wonderful surprises of heaven. There was no language there that we could not understand. On and on and on, through wonderful scenes of beauty we passed, returning finally to our own homes by a different way from that which we had gone forth, seeming to have made almost a circle in our pleasant journeyings. When I left my sister in her own home, she whispered to me as she bade me goodbye for the present. It has been a day of such wonderful rest and pleasure. We must soon repeat it together. And I answered, Yes, dear, we will. In a heavenly city, but without churches. I was roused from my thoughts by the boat touching the marble terrace and found my brother already standing and waiting to assist me to the shore. Passing up a slight upward slope, we found ourselves in a broad street that led into the center of the city. The streets, I found, were all very broad and smooth and paved with marble and precious stones of every kind. Though they were thronged with people intent on various duties, not an atom of debris nor even dust was visible anywhere. There seemed to be vast business houses of many kinds, though I saw nothing resembling our large mercantile establishments. There were many colleges, schools, many book and music stores and publishing houses. Several large manufactories where, I learned, were spun the fine silken threads of manifold colors which were so extensively used in the weaving of the draperies I have already mentioned. There were art rooms, picture galleries, libraries, many lecture halls, and vast auditoriums. But I saw no churches of any kind. At first this somewhat confused me, until I remembered that there are no creeds in heaven, but that all worship together in harmony and love, the children of one and the same loving Father. Ah, I thought, what a pity that that fact 
if no other in the great economy of heaven could not be proclaimed to the inhabitants of earth. How it would do away with the petty contentions, jealousies, and rivalries of the church militant. No creeds in heaven, no controverted points of doctrine, no charges of heresy brought by one professed Christian against another, no building up of one denomination upon the ruins or downfall of a different sect, but one great universal brotherhood whose head is Christ and whose cornerstone is love. I thought of the day we listened in the great auditorium at home to the divine address of our beloved Master, of the bowed heads and uplifted voices of that vast multitude as every voice joined in the glorious anthem, Crown Him Lord of All. And I could have wept to think of the faces that must some day be bowed in shame when they remember how often they have in mortal life said to a brother Christian, Stand aside, I am holier than thou. We found no dwelling houses anywhere in the midst of the city until we came to the suburbs. Here they stood in great magnificence and splendor. But one pleasing fact was that every home had its large yard, full of trees and flowers and pleasant walks. Indeed, it was everywhere, outside of the business center of the town, like one vast park, dotted with lovely houses. There was much that charmed, much that surprised me in this great city of which I may not fully speak, but which I can never forget. We found in one place a very large park, with walks, drives, fountains, miniature lakes and shaded seats, but no dwellings or buildings of any kind except an immense circular open temple capable of seating many hundred, and where, my brother told me, a seraph choir assembled at a certain hour daily to render the oratorios written by the great musical composers of earth and heaven. It had just departed, and the crowd who enjoyed its divine music yet lingered, as though loath to leave a spot so hallowed. We shall remember the hour, my brother said, and come again when we can hear them. The Great Celestial Sea The days lengthened into weeks, the weeks into months, and those in turn crept into years. The duties and joys of heaven grew clearer with each passing hour. Our home life was perfect, though we looked forward with joy to the future coming of our son and his wife to make our ties complete. We had often spoken of going together to the great celestial sea, but the time never seemed quite ripe for doing so. But one evening I said to my brother, I have a strange desire to go out to the sea, if you think it is wise that we should do so. I am glad that it is your desire to go, as it is mine to have you. I was about to propose this blessed journey. I will not go at this time, as it's best that you two should go alone. So in the quivering light of the glorious morning, we started, 
full of a holy joy, that together we might make this special journey. We entered and passed through the great forest, where the golden light fell through the branches and birds of gorgeous plumage and song were darting everywhere. As we drew near the sea, we could hear the regular dashing of waves against the shore. Now there came bursts of triumphant song and harmony of many instruments of music. At length we emerged from the forest and stood mute and motionless before the overwhelming glory of the scene before us. From our very feet, sloped downward and toward the shore, a golden strand, many hundreds of yards wide, and extending out beyond the limits of our vision. And the sea! It spread out before us in a radiance that passes description in any language that I've ever known. The shining glory we caught in the roll of the waves, the blue tint of the waters of that sea which has no limits to its depths nor bounds. Upon its shining bosom, we saw in every direction boats, representing all nations, filled with people looking with eager faces toward the shore, many in their eagerness standing erect and gazing with wistful, expectant eyes into the faces of those upon the shore. Oh, the people upon the shore! A great mass of beautiful souls clad in the spotless garments of the redeemed. Many among them had golden harps and various instruments of music. Whenever a boat touched the shore and its inmates were welcomed by the glad voices and tender embraces of their loved ones in the throng, the harps would be held aloft and all the golden instruments would sound. Then the vast multitude would break forth into the triumphant song of victory over death and the grave. Do these people stand here always, I wonder? I asked softly. Not the same people, said a radiant being near us who had heard my question. But there is always a throng of people here, those who are expecting friends from the other life, and those who assemble here to share their joy. Some of the heavenly choristers are also continually here, but not always the same ones. You will notice that most of those who arrive are led quietly away by their friends, and many others are constantly joining the multitude. He passed onward to the shore and left us wrapped in wonder. We soon became interested in watching the reunions and found ourselves joining with rapture in the glad songs of rejoicing. Now and then, a face we remembered seeing on earth would be among the eager faces in the boats, but none that had been especially dear to us. Still, it made us notice more closely and sympathize more heartily with those who welcomed beloved friends. Now we would see a wife caught in the close embrace of a waiting husband. Now a little child with a glad cry would spring into the outstretched arms of the happy mother. Friend would clasp friend in glad reunion, and here an aged mother would be folded to the heart of a beloved child. As one more boat of strength and beauty came riding gracefully over the waves, 
we observe the tall figure of a man standing near the prow, with his arms about a graceful woman who stood by his side. Each shaded with uplifted hand the splendor from their dazzled eyes, and scanned, wistfully and searchingly, the faces of the crowd as the boat neared the shore. Suddenly, with a great thrill of joy surging through my being, I cried out, It is our precious son and his dear wife, and they've come together. In an instant we were swiftly moving through the throng that had parted in ready sympathy to let us pass. And as the boat touched the shore, with a swift movement, they were both beside us, the dear daughter already closely clasped to the hearts of her own happy parents who were waiting near the water's edge, while at the same instant we felt the arms of our beloved son enfolding us. Soon thereafter we were all in each other's embrace. Oh, what a rapturous moment was that! Our home life in heaven complete, no partings again, forever. As we stood with encircling arms, scarcely realizing the unexpected bliss, the heavenly choir broke into song, and with uplifted faces radiant with joy, eyes filled with happy tears, and voices trembling with emotion, we all joined in the glad anthem. The song arose and fell triumphantly as the vast multitude caught it up, and the surge of the waves made a deep undertone to the melody that increased its solemnity, as with bowed heads and full hearts we passed onward hand in hand, and the light that fell about us was purer, holier, more divine than it had ever been before. And if you enjoyed those excerpts from Within the Gates, the 19th century spiritual classic by Rebecca Springer, you can find below the link to my audiobook channel, which I'm just starting to promote now. And there you can listen to the full audiobook with read-along text. And if you enjoyed Jerry Palladino's songs, you'll also find the link to his YouTube channel where you can enjoy many more of Jerry's beautiful songs. Howard Storm will be with us on the next Nightlight Podcast, and I'll be asking him about the time Jesus took him on a time travel to see how people will be living in the future of this world 200 years from now. And it's absolutely amazing. You'll be so encouraged. Until next time then, God bless and keep you. Bye-bye. Like in a slow motion dance, they flow with ease In harmony with the music of the stars And they're so happy where they are 
They float as they walk and glide around Their feet seem to hardly touch the ground All talking and laughing happily Oh, what a lovely place to be As earth recedes, heaven opens to a world waiting above. We let go of time, pain and sorrow for this glorious kingdom of love. In the morning at dawn, I'll They're much better off than you and I Released from the troubles of this life Free from their hunger and their thirst All disease and every curse Dressed now in shimmering gowns of light Looking much like they did in prime of life Transporting to earth or anywhere They just think it and they're there As earth recedes Heaven opens to a world waiting above We let go of time, pain and sorrow For this glorious kingdom of love From their vantage point of there And when aloud they help us hear And that day when our job on earth is done They'll be there to take us home On that wonderful day we will transform Feeling so loving and so warm up to meet them in the sky at the twinkling of an eye as earth recedes heaven opens to the world waiting above we let go of time pain and sorrow for this glorious kingdom of love